Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome our distinguished guest, Dr. Michael Sachs. Dr. Sachs is the William Kepler Whiteford Professor in the Department of Bioengineering at the University of Pittsburgh, and he's a distinguished researcher known around the world for his work in biomechanics, in particular his focus on cardiovascular and urological systems. Uh, well, I know one of Dr. Sachs's principal interest is in heart valves. So first let me say welcome, Dr. Sachs. It's a pleasure to have you, and thank you for joining us on Regenerative Medicine today. Thank you, John. As I mentioned, uh, you have a, a very significant research program in terms of uh, heart valves, both in terms of uh, understanding the functioning of uh, native valves as well as developing tissue-engineered valves. Uh, perhaps you can uh, give us a, some insight into your research endeavors in that regard. Sure. Well, most of my research sprung from my uh, original interests in how tissues work, um, mainly their mechanical behavior. Um, and this stems from work I did as an undergraduate. And then over the uh, after I got my uh, Ph.D., uh, which my uh, doctoral work was in right ventricular mechanics, I became interested in working on heart valves. And my original interest was to just understand how they functioned. And uh, at that time, there had not been a lot done on certain aspects of the valves and uh, basically the properties of their constituent tissues and their structures. Um, and they struck me as being really fascinating uh, aspects of the cardiovascular system. So it was really started off as kind of a scientific interest. And then as I got into the field, I got drawn into work on what's called bioprosthetic valves. And this is part of a family of replacement heart valves um, used primarily in, in older adults, people approximately 60 years or older, um, to repair uh, heart valves that have been damaged due to rheumatic fever and more commonly due to stenosis, other forms of mineralization. Um, and about uh, six, seven years ago, I connected up with a group at Children's Hospital in Boston who were interested in um, developing a so-called tissue-engineered heart valve, for pe the, mainly for the pediatric population. And that involves um, a very different kind of problem. While it's still a heart valve, the, uh, the pediatric uh, valves are much smaller uh, from an industrial point of view, there aren't that many alternatives because the numbers required are too small to make it an industrially viable uh, investment, if you will. So it's a little bit of an orphaned area from that point of view. But more interestingly, um, patients, uh, particularly very young patients, who undergo um, valve replacement or repair, those repairs need to last the entire life. Not only do they need to uh, last the entire lifetime of, of the patient, they have to grow. So if you're putting them into a young patient who's maybe uh, three, four, five years old, um, that patient will undergo tremendous amounts of growth to adulthood. And uh, pediatric cardiovascular surgeons are beset with the problem of basically having to uh, do initial repairs and then several times over the next five to 10 to 15 years go back and repeat procedures to repair. And this is, uh, has its associated problems, and it's just generally a very traumatic thing for the individual. So there really is a uh, very, on the clinical side, a very important reason why we became interested in that. Very interesting. I, I might mention that, uh, remind some of our listeners that we've had some prior discussions about the vascular repair in terms of arterial structure and the uh, opportunities that uh, tissue engineering may offer in the future. 
but before we move forward, uh, uh, my understanding is that heart valves are, while we take them for granted, they're actually a fairly complex structure. Can you give us a little bit of insight into whether that's a correct uh, presumption or not? Uh, very much so. Um, they uh, have a very simple function, which is to basically to facilitate blood flow through the heart. So the heart goes through the various, blood goes through the chambers in the, in the correct sequence. Um, so from that point of view, they don't differ all that much from any common valve you may see uh, in your home plumbing system. Um, but from a physiological point of view, how they actually do this, they have to do this over three billion times over a typical lifetime. And uh, further, they are essentially embedded within uh, blood contacting environment. And of course, they can't fail. Uh, it's not like they can become damaged or sprained or fractured. Uh, as one of my old biology teachers used to say, that becomes inconsistent with life. So they are tremendously over-designed structure. The interesting point is, that, as I understand it, is that there, the, some of the, the different valves in the heart really have different functional requirements. Is that correct? Yeah. The ones on the right side, which, we're, which basically deals with taking blood from the um, surrounding, from the heart, and then pumping it through the lungs before it goes back into the left side, work generally under a lower pressure system, but the amount of blood they have to transport is, is of course, the same as on the left side. Uh, and then you have the left side valves, which then have to do the same thing, but at a much, much higher pressure. The other thing, too, is that if you look at, there are really two types of valves. There's the so-called so atrial ventricular valves, which are the valves that um, take, uh, basically allow blood to go from the atrias of the heart to the ventricles of the heart where they're, uh, before they get injected into either the, the uh, systemic or pulmonary systems. And then there's the so-called semilunar uh, valves, which are the ones that we've often seen in various uh, movies and so on. Those of you who have ever seen the movie Fantastic Voyage has seen the small miniaturized submarine going through the heart, and you'll see a beautiful view of, the, of an aortic valve, um, at least according to the movie's uh, maker's imagination. Um, so those, those valves, which are the aortic and pulmonary valves, really are the, in many ways um, the ones that most people are familiar with, and they, they allow blood to go from the ventricles out to the rest of the body. But the, the most demanding ones are the so-called atrioventricular valves. These are the mitral and tricuspid valves, which uh, particularly the mitral valve is by far the most complex and um, most demanding uh, of the valves. It's a very complex structure. Not only does it consist of leaflets that uh, essentially come together and form a seal, but it also is uh, connected to the rest of the left ventricle through little cords uh, that attach it to small muscles that project up from the ventricular wall that hold the whole thing together and allow it to uh, work as a whole functional unit. Um, many adults suffer from valve disease or congenital abnormalities and you'll find them uh, in their 50s or 60s start undergoing what's called mitral valve uh, prolapse and, and they have regurgitation where blood actually begins to seep through the valve. And uh, the good news is that many of these can be easily repaired um, through modern techniques, uh, those that cannot have to get a prosthetic valve. That's a good segue to the other point I wanted to explore with you that uh, you, you introduced a moment ago this, the issue of, uh, of youth and the fact that in addition to doing a repair, you have to you do multiple repairs over a period of time, or if there was a tissue engineered valve that could grow with the youth, that would alleviate that. 
that in terms of, of adults, there's a, a range of options. There is, uh, of course, repair, as you've suggested, and then there's a variety of, of replacements. I, I seem to recall that uh, in some cases, porcine valves are used. Uh, and what, what are the options from a clinical perspective today? Well, today there are basically between two major families for the, in the adult. These are the so-called mechanical heart valves and the so-called bioprosthetic. The mechanical are kind of a misnomer because it's really a really would better be called a synthetic valve. is made of completely man-made materials. Uh, it's a completely rigid structure, so you have a surrounding frame uh, which is made out of either titanium or some other uh, very biocompatible alloy, and the little leaflets that uh, actually provide the functional valve are made out of something called pyrolytic carbon, which was discovered uh, many years ago. Uh, in the nuclear industry as a very um, compatible uh, surface uh, for blood and very rigid and extremely durable. And these valves, if, if there was nothing else wrong with them, would, would have solved all of our problems because they last for easily the life of the patient. Um, but the difficulties, they tend to um, induce what's called thromboembolytic events. Uh, that is, they actually sometimes can form, uh, your blood can form small blood clots as it passes through the valve. And the reasons for this have been studied for many years, but the, the, down, the, um, the bottom line is that uh, there's a limited amount that you can really do about it. And therefore, patients who get these valves, why these valves will last their entire lives, have to be on anticoagulants for the rest of their lives. And this has to be dosed properly, and it has associated morbidity problems. Um, the other family of valves are so-called bioprosthetic valves, and as the name suggests, um, these are valves made from tissues from either a, per a bovine pericardium or porcine uh, aortic valve that is chemically treated, uh, shaped, and met mounted into a metal frame called a stent. And uh, these look uh, very much like, they look very biological. Um, and when they're sewn in, um, they can last for many years. The upside of these valves is that they don't require anticoagulants generally, at least not um, a, a little bit. Some anticoagulation is required after the first month or two of surgery, but beyond that, you can have largely 10 to 15 years of relatively complication-free uh, function. But then uh, after about that period of time, uh, the valves will begin to deteriorate and break down and have to be replaced. So in a way, um, one can argue that you essentially replace one disease with another. Um, the challenges there are for valve designers and manufacturers, people who develop valves, is that these valves have been around for many, many years in various designs, and they work very well for a long time, but they're far from perfect, and uh, the challenge is, is to really make something that's a real paradigm shift that could really get around the problems of these two existing valves for the adult. In, in that regard, what does the future hold from a both a scientific perspective as well as, uh, I know you're not a clinician, but you collaborate with clinicians mm -hmm. from, a, from a clinical perspective. Well, that's a very good uh, question, John, and I think that in many ways that's, that's the, that is the question because, um, as I've said before, um, the current prosthetic valves are really remarkably good. In many ways, they're a lot like other very successful prosthetic implants such as the hip implant or the knee implant, where through a combination of engineering ingenuity, surgical skill and, and sheer serendipity, we've hit upon some very good designs that will last for a long time, but are still not far from, still far from perfect. So the challenge is, uh, what, to do, what can you do that will be um, really new? 
uh, tissue engineering has been very attractive um, as a different way to do this, um, although it is probably best suited in the current concept uh, for those patients that have to grow. Um, in terms of synthetic materials, um, polymer valves have been tried for many years with uh, very limited success. Uh, and uh, therefore, I would say we are moving toward an era where increasing knowledge of the biological activity of the valve is going to have to be brought in. Uh, there's a lot more interest now on repair of the valve, the idea that you can try to uh, do as much repair without having put a replacement in. This has been done with a great deal of success in the mitral valve, but with much less in the aortic valve. Um, but again, there's still situations, most situations, where repairs are not possible. Um, the other uh, area would be uh, possibly the so-called homograph, where a cadaveric valve is inserted. But these are very limited in supply and also have similar uh, durability problems in the bioprosthetic valve. So I would say, really, um, one could say that all the low-hanging fruit has been done. Um, there's been some attempt to do what's called percutaneous valves, and that's basically uh, a way of delivering the valve to the, uh, to the repair site in such a way that it minimizes uh, the need for an, an invasive surgery. Um, this is still very experimental. It's very attractive for pa very elderly patients who cannot tolerate the valve surgery but desperately need a valve and can be done as kind of an um, interim procedure. Uh, in terms of the main stay, which is the adult valve replacement uh, area, um, there's still many open questions as to what would be the uh, new, new, newest area. Certainly, um, tissue engineering is probably, the, I would, uh, and one can argue, the only real new idea that's been out there um, and is uh, very much under development in, in several labs. But, so, am I correct to say that it, we're, quote, years away from having a tissue engineered heart valve that's clinically usable? Yeah, I think you have to define um, what is meant by, um, you know, what is a meant by tissue engineering and what is meant by, you know, clinically available. Very likely what you'll see is more, probably much more of a step-by-step -step approach where um, we gradually begin to introduce more advanced concepts um, into uh, the clinical arena and then from the, uh, from what's learned, uh, begin to be able to move it, f to move uh, the whole field forward. In the case of, the exception of this would be in the case of, of repair, of in children where they can uh, tolerate um, uh, more and there may be more rapid uh, attempts at repair uh, using tissue engineering or related uh, approaches in, in children. Very good. I, I know that one of your other interests is the, this whole field of characterization of, of tissue. So as an engineer, when you say to someone, I'd like you to replicate a, a heart valve, uh, the question that presumably follows is that uh, what are the characteristics of that tissue? And I know you've done some very widely recognized work in trying to uh, develop techniques and to characterize both uh, natural tissue, including heart valves, as well as engineered tissue. Uh, could you share just a bit of insight with us in terms of uh, where that field is and what's the state oh, of the art? Yeah, that's a real exciting area for us because if, even if you're not an engineer, one can appreciate if you're trying to develop something to replace a living valve, 
you have to understand what the living valve is, and that is you have to understand what are you replacing. And um, it turns out that um, one would think that after hundreds of years of medical research that we would have a very good understanding of how these valves actually work. It turns out that's far from the case. And as I go through the literature, I see us learning much, much more that there are many, many fundamental aspects of valve function that are not well understood. Um, they are absolutely amazing tissues in the sense of their strength and their durability. Um, they are tremendously over-designed. To give you an idea, um, they will operate under stresses of several hundred kilopascals, uh, but they will fail um, when put on a mechanical testing machine and pull the failure at anywhere from 15 to 25 times that functional stress. That means they have about a 20-fold um, safety factor uh, which would, would sounds very reasonable because, like I said, you don't want them to fail. Um, they also have very peculiar tissue properties that are unusual. They are perhaps in many ways most similar to the dense connective tissues of the musculoskeletal system that you see in joint capsules, uh, ligaments, and so on. And yet they function in a blood contacting environment and have some rather unique properties that are not... Um, uh, not shared by other tissues. So we can see while they're made from the same basic building blocks, if you will, protein building blocks of other tissues, they hold some very unique properties. And certainly prying open those secrets will help us, uh, help us learn more about what it is that we're trying to replace. In a, in a relatively lay sense, uh, how does an engineer like you and your colleagues determine the characteristics of uh, these tissues? I think, you know, my training and my research work has been in the soft tissue area pretty much my entire career. We spent, have spent a great deal of time understanding exactly how they function, including developing some novel instrumentation and novel modeling approaches. Um, lately, we've gotten much more interested in the underlying um, cellular functions that, that support this, and this is obviously very critical in, for heart valve tissue engineering, and have discovered some very novel aspects of how the constituent cells of the different valves behave in very different waves, uh, which would are largely unanticipated from um, basic function. In terms of being an engineer, I think those of us in bioengineering, while we have, like myself, have a fairly traditional background in, 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 in mechanics and biomechanics really in particular, um, we have learned to do many, many other things and uh, learning to be a very broad in understanding. I would say the real issue in, in valves, as with many or the, most other areas of the body, is really understanding their understanding function. That is how they function, uh, and that essentially what we're ultimately trying to do is to restore function. And I think this is where we as engineers have a very unique point of view. So it seems that uh, for a device like a valve, you really need to treat it from a systems approach. There's uh, various aspects in terms of... Uh, the cellular level, there's uh, electromechanical aspects and so forth. Is that a correct assumption? Very much so, and I think it's um, sometimes a little daunting to try to try to uh, put your head around the entire big picture, but that's really what the challenges of modern bioengineering are. So we're very different from many other traditional areas of engineering where one focuses on a very fairly narrow area and kind of like a sub-sub-sub-specialty, and that's kind of where you stick it, and that's really a nice way to do it because you can get a lot more done. But if you look at things from a very broad perspective, then you kind of can see the bigger picture. And this is um, particularly attractive to working with clinicians who ultimately are there on the, 
on the cutting edge, if you will, basically trying to restore function in a patient, and they have a very good handle on this problem. Dr. Sachs, I know one of your responsibilities in addition to the uh, excellent research you do is uh, both teaching and, and training students in the uh, bioengineering department. You want to share some insights with us in terms of those responsibilities? One of the things that we, we started about a year and a half ago was um, developing a, a training program in, in biomechanics. And I think this really shows the uh, overall challenges that are involved in doing this. Training uh, doctorate, doctoral students and postdoctoral students and undergraduates uh, in bioengineering is very challenging because there's so much they have to learn uh, in a relatively short time. And as I was alluding to earlier, um, they're not only trained in one single narrow area, but I also have to have a fairly broad training. I think as a, uh, as a professor, this provides some very interesting challenges in terms of pedagogy. Um, but I would say here at Pitt, I've been uh, delighted in the abilities to um, do very novel things on an educational basis and work with ex some extremely talented students. Um, I think the University of Pittsburgh, and particularly the Department of Bioengineering and the McGowan Institute, form a very unique partnership, both for research and education, that uh, I think many other places are attempting to emulate. I've uh, heard you and your colleagues speak about the, uh, the multidisciplinary nature of these types of studies and the fact that uh, you need not only to train scientists and engineers to work in a particular discipline, to, but to work at the interfaces, and I believe that's what you just shared with us in, in your, your own words. Well, Dr. Sachs, it's uh, been a pleasure to uh, hear and, and learn some more of your exciting work. Perhaps I should have uh, introduced this topic at the beginning of our discussion, but I'd like to extend our congratulations. I know that you and your colleague, Dr. Wagner, were recently recognized by Scientific America as being one of the top 50 scientists uh, pursuing your interest in biomedicine. Uh, so this concludes this particular podcast. I'd like again to say thanks to Dr. Sachs for sharing with us some of his, his vision and some of his accomplishments. Uh, I remind you that uh, we can receive emails at our mail address, which is mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. I remind you that we're not physicians and we cannot answer uh, medical questions uh, either directly or, or via the Internet but we welcome your feedback in terms of the suggestions for programming in this podcast, which is sponsored by the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine, and we look forward to joining you again in two weeks with another exciting interview. Thank you.